0: Well It is meant to ready.
1: Welcome to Truth Time with Pastor Monty, a show where two pastors from different generations talk about truth in today's culture. At the top of the show today, let's go ahead and spread this content by liking and sharing it and making sure that you're subscribed to our show. And for all of you on YouTube, hit the bell so you can be informed of all upcoming shows. The Truth Time with Pastor Monty broadcast is a part of the Latia Bible Fellowship's online podcast network of shows the VRM. If you're interested in this ministry or our other shows, you can check us out at adfpdx.org where you can access more resources, donate, and learn more about ADF and our local church in Portland, Oregon. And now that all of that is said, I'm Pastor Josh, the senior pastor over at ADF and your co-host for this show, and this is Pastor Monty.
0: Welcome to Truth Time. I am Pastor Monty, and I'm here with Pastor Josh and we're going to be spending the next hour talking about a number of different things but before we get into all of that let's get into the word in the Christ factor the now we've been in the book of colossians we're in chapter 1 we left off uh, roughly chapter 20 <laughs> verse 23 And uh, so we'll pick it up where uh, the Apostle Paul has finished his thought uh, as he's been talking about the uh, importance of the gospel and his proclamation of the gospel. And uh, and now he establishes uh, his position uh, as being uh, a laborer for Christ. And so in verse 24 we pick up, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known amongst the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everybody with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So in this proclamation, the Apostle Paul is, is uh, basically sharing a couple of different things. Number one, he sees himself as a servant of Christ, a laborer uh, called to a specific calling. And uh, if you read the book of Acts, you might note that in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul goes to the, uh, the Apostles, and he presents himself. What he presents is that he believes that God has called him to a ministry of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles, and so his ministry specifically was to share the gospel of Christ with the Gentiles. Now, to the to the uh, to the apostles, this was a fairly new concept. We take for granted that. Uh, the gospel of Christ has been shared with all, and is to be shared with all, uh, in our day and age. But at the beginning of the church, um, it was believed by the apostles that uh, the uh, the message of the gospel of Christ was particularly Jewish in nature, and this is one of the reasons why the um, the the Romans did not at first see Christianity as it was developing as a threat because it was uh, believed to be, by many, just an offshoot of Judaism. Now, the Romans, their position was is that whatever religion was present in the region in which they were conquering, you were still allowed to practice that religion as long as you added their particular brand of emperor worship to, uh, to your religion. So in the Roman world, there were many, many, many religions, and you were allowed to continue your own and to worship in that fashion. But one thing that you weren't allowed to do was to create or establish a new religion, and so, in the early part of the church, Christianity, because of its Jewish heritage, was uh, saw to be or seen to be uh, Jewish in nature. But the local Jewish leaders, over time, begin to make it very, very clear that Christianity was a separate religion from Judaism, in, in so much that the, uh, the hierarchy within the Jewish church um, with Judaism uh, even uh, went so far as to close the canon of what was acceptable as Old Testament Scripture so that no Christian text could be added uh, to anything uh, Jewish. It was at this point that the Jews begin to um, differentiate themselves. Christianity began to be seen as a separate entity, a new creation uh, within the Roman influence, and therefore the Romans begin to persecute Christians. So within the church, now that's a brief history, I understand it, but I think it's a necessary history for those of you who are not familiar with history to understand that for the first many years, basically from what we understand, somewhere between seven to ten years, the church was considered to be a Jewish thing. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Peter, uh, insomuch that Peter was given a vision, you, are, you might remember the vision, where Peter was uh, shown a uh, a large cloth that was brought down with all kinds of unclean things to eat, and he protested, and God sent a message that said, "Anything that I bless is uh, is allowed." So that's I mean you can go into action you can read it but the, the but that's the the uh, simplified version of what was being said. So the apostles had to come to grips with the fact that the the message of Jesus Christ was no longer just for uh, was, was no longer just for Jews but in fact was for the Gentile world as well. The apostle Paul then declares that he has been set aside specifically for the ministry of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with Gentiles. And for definition's sake, for those who don't know, uh, anybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Simply put. Okay. You want to add anything to all that? I mean, that's a a mouthful, but you want to add anything before we move
1: on? No, not really. I mean, that's... It's a good history lesson.
0: Okay, so the Apostle Paul understood then that his call to be a messenger of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles would bring about physical affliction. He understood that. He under- and if you read the book of Acts and you read the, uh, the uh, turmoil that the Apostle Paul went, he went through much suffering uh, in order to uh, present that message uh, but he clearly understood that God had commissioned him to do that and to present the message of Christ in its fullness. And so he talks, for example, in verse uh, 26 where he says that, uh, well, at verse the end of verse 25 that he's present the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that had been hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. What is that mystery? That mystery, very simply, is that is that uh, mankind is not capable of saving himself, and that God intervened by sending part of himself, the son, the 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 middle part of the Trinity, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And
1: we, we probably shouldn't call it a part well <laughs>
0: Here we get into the heavy, it's hard the heavy to theology. Des- I'm trying to describe it in layman's right. understanding. Yeah. God is made up of... Here we go. God is made up the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Without each of those elements... We understand God to be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, with it, without any of those elements, God is not God as he represents himself. Yes. The Son... The, the, the uh, aforementioned, one of the aforementioned elements became flesh. There you go. Was born into humanity, became flesh, lived a perfect life, uh, and died so that he might be a sacrifice uh, in order to pay the price necessary to pay uh, for the sin of mankind. Now, the Apostle Paul has some big words to describe this. Uh, basically speaking, what do we know about Christ? Christ was born, entered into humanity according to God's plan at the perfect time. Um, it was perfect in every way. The, the, the mechanism of language, the people who were in control at the time, all those elements are there for the perfect timing of Jesus Christ to enter into humanity. The Apostle Paul calls the sacrifice of Christ to cover the sin of mankind, his blood, his pure, unblemished blood, to cover the sin of mankind, a propitiation. It is a payment being made for you and for I. So this is the mystery that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Um, and if you look at his writings for example when he writes to the Corinthians for example he talks about the fact that he's uh, when <laughs> he was frustrated because he when he went uh, up onto Mars Hill and he listened to the philosophers up there and he talked with the philosophers he came away with understanding that he was no, longer going to get weighed down by man's philosophy he would present the gospel of christ that is jesus christ crucified for the sin of man in its simplicity so he understand that that's his position and he is called to do so um, and this and so then he goes on in verse 27 to say that this was god's plan To them God has chosen to make known amongst the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this was God's plan all along. And I guess this is where we have difficulty in regard to the, the Jewish nation understanding its role in God's overall plan. Because the the Jews had a major case of where God's chosen I'm better than you. Hmm. <laughs> they, they 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 had a major case of I got it and you don't. Um, and and the Apostle Paul kind of destroys all that. Uh, now, you got to remember that the Apostle Paul was. Uh, uh, he was a Jewish scholar, yeah, interestingly, he was also a Roman scholar. It seems that way yes and and uh, and so he understood uh, the elements of the Jewish world as well as the Gentile world, and God chose him to bring all those things uh, to bear and uh very interesting that um, what he's basically saying to the Jews is that God allowed you to be a vehicle through which his overall design would be carried out. And that overall design was that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of mankind, not just the Jews, but the Savior of all of mankind through his shed blood on the cross of Calvary is that mystery uh, which he then proclaimed.
1: Yeah, I think, again, you, you have to remember that what Paul is dealing with is proto-Gnostic, and that there's a lot of that in here. The Gnostics believed that salvation is um, attained by understanding secrets. And that the information that you, so basically you understand these secrets and you sort of like, um, the, the universe is revealed to you essentially. So if you look at this passage between 24 and 29, if you look at it in that context, you can see that really what's happening here is Paul's blowing off the walls of the Gnostic idea of who Christ is. Yes. Specifically, this, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming the entire message to you. That's part one, right? Because in Gnosticism and proto Gnosticism, like before it really like took its form, it, it, you know, taught that the messages were um, hidden messages. So here's the entire message. You don't need to keep getting it from your master and in this apprentice relationship that, um, yes, it was something that was kept secret, but now it's completely revealed, and it's completely revealed to all of God's people. Right. It's something that God wants people to know, and, that it, and it is something that people innately know when they have a relationship with Christ, because they don't have to then work their way into relationship with God, because God in Christ lives in all of us. Right. And so this is like... Theological treaties against the Gnostic idea of um, the Gnostic idea that information is given only to an elite class of people. Um, And he talks about, you know, we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. That's a direct dig at Gnosticism again, because the Gnostics, that word is soph. The word for wisdom is soph, and the Gnostics deify the concept of wisdom as Sophia. Mm-hmm. That that true knowledge comes from Sophia, but Paul is saying that 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 true knowledge is given to us by God, and that's where wisdom comes from. Um, so there's a lot. There's just there's a lot here. There's a there's a real context. Uh, that we need to remember as we're looking at this passage, which again, and we've talked about this several times before, but again, a lot of Christians, as Pastor Monty was saying, they sort of take this elite idea that uh, the more mature you are as a believer, or the more time you've spent in the church, or the when I say mature, I, what I mean is the longer you've been a Christian or the more time you spent in the church that you somehow have a, have a specific uh, elevated level of maturity or elevated uh, revelation that you're secretly um, that your secrets are better than the secrets of the people who have come into the church. And what Paul is saying is, no, that's not true. And even as a Jew who you've had a relationship with God for X, Thousands of years, right? Um, and then the Gentiles who don't—the truth is—is is that you're on equal playing field with them. Right. And in the book of Romans, he goes on to actually say in Romans one through six, you're actually on a worse playing field than them because you've had a relationship so long that you actually can be judged for not having the right type of relationship.
0: Right. So, yeah, and so he goes on to say this. He says uh, in twenty-eight. Uh, He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everybody with all wisdom that we may present everybody fully mature in Christ. So his goal, I think really important to understand that as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, his teaching was not just so that he could make uh, spiritual babies. He was not involved in wanting to just bring people to the saving knowledge of Christ, but he was wanting to disciple them to the point of maturity so that they understood the fullness of who they were now as a new creation in Christ. And so when you go on and you read the epistles, uh, the book of Romans and First and Second Corinthians and so on, what you're going to find is a wealth of knowledge explaining... Uh, to the church as it struggles to grow what it means uh, to be uh, alive in the mystery of Christ. It's fascinating. Um, And uh, he says that he does this with all the energy that God has powerfully uh, worked uh, in him. And uh, we're going to end this section of our time together um, right there and start next week at uh, Chapter 2. Now we want to take a little bit of time and talk about uh, relationships. So last week, we left off with exploring. We are uh, continuing to explore, and we'll need to do so for... Or two a, weeks ago. A couple weeks more. Yeah, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we left off with a discussion of uh, relationship in regard to husband and wife. And we were talking about the uh, the dynamic that uh, needs to exist, the, the ideal versus the uh, reality of what many people face. In this, probably one of the most intimate and, and uh, unique aspects of relationship that mankind deals with, and that is the relationship between a husband and wife. And this is an ordained relationship. This is a relationship which is probably, as I said, the primary relationship. And it is one, quite frankly, that men and women struggle with, in order to be successful with. And so we've been exploring how can we be successful in that. So last week we kind of began and ended our discussion with the concept that most individuals when they come into this relationship, they, <laughs> for the most part, I, I I believe most people when they come into this, this relationship, they come into it uh, under false pretenses. Mm-hmm. There are, there, there, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Josh and I, when we counsel people, we talk about the fact that um, there's, there's upwards of uh, 10 or 12 different reasons why people decide that they're going to get married. And sometimes the reason for one of the partners is not the same reason of the other partner. And when you actually get into the relationship, um, where difficult, where, where things get difficult, then is discovering that you're on a completely different plane to begin with. You might ask yourself why it is that um, that different people in the in the in the secular world, uh, for sure, that's the easiest example uh, because many of you may know. But but you know, for example, uh, uh, Priscilla Presley and and Nicholas Cage we were married uh, two months.
1: What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Priscilla Presley.
0: Yeah, like Elvis's wife. Oh no no uh, the, the, the the daughter uh, Anna Marie.
1: Really? Yeah. Are you thinking of Michael Jackson and?
0: Well, Michael Jackson was her. The, they were married for several years. Okay. And then her her uh, second husband was uh, Nicholas Cage. What? They were married for two months. Weird. Yeah, Anna Marie. I'm sorry, not not Priscilla. Um, and because, uh, or or another example would be um, would be, uh, um, oh, Kenny Chesney. And uh, who did he? Oh, want? you're talking about
1: the other daughter. Yeah. You're uh, not talking about Lisa Marie. Yeah. Um, oh wait, you are talking. I about am Lisa talking Marie.
0: about Lisa Marie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Kenny Chesney uh, was married to... Um, oh, what is her name now? So, uh, <laughs> I wanted to say Schwarzenegger, but it's not. It's, um,
1: in, I, I don't know because I don't listen to country, anyway, Kenny, country music. Anyway,
0: Kenny, so. Kenny Chesney wrote a beautiful ballad for this woman. They they got married and then quickly got divorced because they married for separate reasons. And and they just couldn't make it work. So oftentimes you'll hear married couples say that, you know, the reason that they're getting divorced is irreconcilable differences. Uh-huh. Well, if you really approach marriage from the standpoint that, that God intends, then there is no such thing as irreconcilable differences. There are differences that you definitely need to learn how to, to work through. But no difference needs to be irreconcilable so how do you how do you approach this well one of the things that we suggested last week and we talked about a little bit is the fact that that when you um are thinking about your your spouse within this uh within this intimate relationship that exists you one of the things that you have to learn is to accept your spouse for for who they are um now one of the um There's a a great book that was written that we usually recommend for people that are being counseled. Um, The title of it is, uh, man, I need to take some
1: prejudice or something. Um, (laughs) I have no idea what you said, and I don't know the book.
0: No, the the, (laughs) um, (laughs) incompatibility grounds for great marriage. Okay. And incompatibility grounds for a great marriage. The author of this book talks about the fact that that he and his wife are uh, two of the most incompatible individuals that you will run across. What she thinks, he thinks different. What he thinks, she thinks different. Um, I would say that uh, my wife and I are probably in that order. We're very much incompatible in 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 many different things, but we've been married forty three plus years. Um, so, so how, how do you make that work? Well, first of all, the, you go through the process of learning to, uh, accept your partner, uh, for who they are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and so part of the, part of the getting to know you process is learning who your partner is, learning who your spouse is. And you would think that some of that, uh, in fact, most of that should be in the beginning stages, take place during courtship. But oftentimes that is not the case. Because what happens in the real world is that uh, during the courtship period, uh, men and women have a tendency to put on uh, their best face.
1: Yeah, if it's a short enough courtship
0: yeah if it's a longer courtship of a year or so then you may be able to see some things that you should i think i
1: think six months is i think six months is good for for that
0: yeah yeah i i i, I wouldn't put a specific time frame uh, clearly what d- during the courtship period though one of the things you should be exploring is um who you are each of you as individuals well that's what courtship is for, right courtship
1: is not dating, and I think that that's what people don't really understand about that process is they think they are that they've committed to this person when really what courtship is is it's a commitment to decide whether you're committed to that person.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's a it's a like a uh, like a covenantal. It's like a covenant to make a covenant, an engagement to get engaged.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it's and if in the process you find that you're really uh, so different and and, and not compatible in so many ways, then there's uh, there's freedom to break off. That's what you should do. The intention. Well, and that's what
1: it. So that's why, like, when you're courting somebody, it doesn't really make sense to look at like issues of sexual compatibility, because sexual compatibility is. I mean, it's malleable. Let's just put it that way. Like, you can, you can make things the way you want to uh, with that. And within time, people can learn the physical, I don't know, art of making love, as one might say. Um, but the other things that are a lot harder to deal with, like worldview.
0: Yeah, um, th- think That's of it this so way. a lot harder. No, I mean I agree with you one hundred percent. Think of it. Think of it this way: um, the sexual aspect of it. Uh, first of all, uh, there are nuances, but will come naturally. And and the the reality of it is, is that uh, that small act of of sexual engagement, uh, likely to produce a child. And, and the, the transition that marriages go through um, from uh, learning how to live together and then having a child and negotiating life within that framework uh, diminishes uh, for many the, the, the sexual aspect of marriage down to, uh, down to about uh, 3%.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. A lot of people don't know this or they know it as a trope, but sexuality within the marriage relationship is A, not guaranteed, and B, it's not... Uh it's not something that lasts forever. No. Like it's, you're going to get old. Your worldview is, world is something that in theory lasts a long, long time. It's the basis on which you're going to raise your children. But you're not going to raise your children based upon whether you can have sex with somebody. And then on top of it, like, if you look at what is enjoyable for men versus what's for women, like, you can look at the statistics regarding, for instance, the female climax, sure, if you will. And most most women don't climax during sexual encounters.
0: Not unless the conditions are absolutely correct. It's kind of like getting snow in Portland. <laughs> so, you have all the right conditions. <laughs> well, so so the 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 point being is, there's a
1: lot of um, interplay that takes place in the marriage relationship, where now you have a fertile ground to work on these things, to talk through things like sexuality and so on and so forth, right? Where you can get to know these things as your partner grows and changes. But before that, um, it's really kind of putting the cart before the horse. It's the things that you, when you come into a marriage relationship, you should know how you're going to raise a child. I know that's weird to say, but uh, in this culture, but it's very much at the front of it, a business transaction
0: yeah yeah no I, I agree hundred percent you need to learn you need to have an idea of uh, what your expectation is versus your spouse's in regard to parenting styles um, which uh, take a, a lot of discussion because you're gonna have influences from the families that each of you came from uh, you're also whether you accept or reject the methodologies that were used you're going to have, uh, you know, you're going to have uh, uh, world philosophies that you have to dig out versus what Scripture has to say. Um, How you view money, yeah, so many. Where you go to church, so many things, and these things don't get defined unless you sit down and you talk them through. And that's what your time with each
1: other should be when you're. So this thing of like, uh, you know, we go to a movie. We eat food. We talk about our friends. We talk about um, we we sort of like small talk each other during yeah, these times yeah, yeah. and just enjoy each other and like and bask in the love that we have for each other. <laughs> this that is not what that's that is what dating is. Yeah, but that's not what uh, Court what courting champions. is. Yes. courting is is. Looking to see if not if you want to get in bed with this person, it's do you want to wake up next to this
0: person? <laughs> that's that's the question that you need yeah, to be asking great, yourself. Great question. So, and then, and and so then, part of that then is part of what you need to discover is um, what what areas your um, what areas that your your spouse has that uh, are attractive to you. And that you're drawn to, and what areas repulse you? Yeah, it's very important for
1: you to look at the things that you don't like about your spouse. 100. percent
0: Yeah, yeah, and then and
1: then about your potential spouse.
0: Yeah, and then and then work through uh, those issues in order to you know in order to come to an understanding of how you're going to work them out once you're married and together. And it is a process that takes even time after you're married in order to work those things through. Now, if you've never discussed them, if you've never understood what they are, um, remember that most people, again, they put it on a face and put their best foot forward when they're in this uh, interim relationship before marriage. But after uh, people get married, everything comes off. Yeah. and everything hangs out and all pretense is gone and the I have dumb people that are shocked uh, at, at what they discover do you think there's an
1: argument for cohabitation before marriage in that uh no <laughs> I just when you live with somebody it's very different like when you live with somebody you get to see the fullness of uh, you're essentially living under social contract, right. right? And you get to see the fullness of where a person is, how they wake up, how they go to bed, you know, uh, you get to, this sounds crude, but you get to s- smell whether they stink, you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Um, and that's like, so so. from that standpoint, like cohabitation before marriage could be incredibly educational it could be but
0: you'd have to have some very very narrow parameters yeah uh, yeah
1: and i want to be clear when i'm when i'm saying that i'm talking theoretically i would not recommend cohabitation before marriage even with those parameters to the normal person i think that it can be done as long as you stay away from entering into a sexual covenant with each other
0: right and which is which is very very difficult to do um, so for most people, why, prohibition is
1: the best is the best method. Yeah, but we're not. I'm in in my statement. I'm assuming that uh, that a person is maintaining their sexual boundaries.
0: Right. So so then the next step in the process is after you have all of that that you've considered. Then the next step in the process is, is then learning um, what's, what strengths and what weaknesses each of you have and how you're going to blend those together for the strength of the marriage yeah and so and, and so then you get into the complexities of for example I know that uh, Josh and I were talking about this before but but uh, when I do marriage counseling uh, we spend at least 3 weeks dealing with the uh, issue of communication and communication skills. Because each partner usually will come to the relationship with, um, you know, with uh, their own personality, their own temperament, and and how it is that they uh, go through conflict resolution. And unless you've learned how to do those types of things... Um, it can be very difficult for a marriage. I, I would say that a necessary part, which rarely happens, but a, a necessary part of development within a marriage relationship is learning about conflict resolution.
1: Yeah, it's important to learn how to fight with each other. Absolutely. Alongside each other for the, for the common goal. I think that um, at the end of the day, a lot of people feel like they're competing In relationships and that's like a common thing that we have to counsel through Uh, and what's really sad about that in counseling is usually the other people you've got one partner who is who feels alone and then the other partner who doesn't understand why the partner feels alone and so it's not that either partner wants their other partner to, to feel alone or even thinks that. And so usually there's just a reconnection that needs to happen where there's an understanding of you're not alone. But it's easy to see why even down to the, the very way you communicate with language is important because if you're constantly messaging your partner, not like text messaging, but like giving your partner a, the message that, like for instance, when you tell them shut up, for instance... And you're constantly saying that to them. You're saying, I don't want to communicate with you. Right. I don't value your statements, so on and so forth. When you make statements like uh, a common phraseology, like um, to end an argument, like you can go to hell. Like you're making damning statements about your partner, and then you wonder why it is that they feel alone or feel like you're not on the same team. It's like even the nuance of language is something that needs to be paid attention to. And that's difficult because oftentimes the message that's given to us about what marriage is, is that um, it's a place to relax, right? Like our families are meant for relaxation. Uh, So we close the doors after a nine to five day, like working hard for our family. And what we want to do is relax. We just want to you know, watch some TV, Arizona. eat a good meal or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's not what marriage is. Marriage is a place to work. It's a place for you to work on an intimate level, on the inside of the person, to become more and more sanctified, more holy, more sacred between you and God, and to represent the Godhead. So it's actually where you do more work, uh, and that's why you need to pick a partner that's willing to to do that. To with do you. The work with you, yeah.
0: Yeah, so what we're going to do is next week, we're going to continue our discussion in relationship, particularly we're focusing on the husband-wife relationship and spending a little more time here because it's a very complex relationship. Uh, I want to next week begin to explore, as we've started to this week, some very practical communication type things that you can do which will uh, be strengthening to the relationship that uh, exists. Let's move on and talk a little bit about uh, what's happening today. <laughs> wow, that was really loud. Uh, oh, wow, that's a red <laughs> well, alert. Well, I'll tell you what—that's the way uh, it feels nowadays. Yeah, um, I was—I was going to be—I was going to talk about. Um, Some of the other things that are going on, but for the last two weeks, the war which is uh, existing between uh, Russia and the Ukraine uh, has dominated uh, everything that's going on. So I just wanted to clarify a couple of things that are happening that uh, I bring them up because I think there really should be a matter of uh, prayer and understanding the dynamics of what's happening. So after the Soviet bloc fell in 1991, and there were several states that separated from the USSR, uh, Ukraine being one of them, um, there were also the Baltic states. So you have uh, Poland and, and several others uh, that, uh, that did so as well. Now, Poland uh, borders the Ukraine. And Poland uh, joined the United Nations. So what's happening right now is that the the Ukrainians are 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 being pl- uh, pummeled by uh, Russia.
1: Are they doing a Are they doing a pretty decent job of?
0: They're doing a pretty decent job of trying to defend themselves with what they have. Yeah, but I mean, they've shot down several planes. They've uh, the report is they've killed up to somewhere around four or five thousand uh, Russians. Uh, they've shot down, uh, you know, they've destroyed several tanks. So, so with the Stinger missiles and things like that, the problem that they're running into is when the Russian uh, pilots discovered that they, uh, that they could be shot down with these Stinger missiles, uh, they said, well, we'll just fly outside of their, their range. And so they're making uh, attacks against the populace then from a higher altitude, mm. which means that they don't have the accuracy in their bombing, and so civilians are being killed. Um, you know, there's so they're just free dropping. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're,
1: basically, they're going scorched earth.
0: Yeah, basically. And and uh, you know, the Russians are finding that they're 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 having equipment issues. So the the Ukrainians oh, on, are, on both sides. Are, well, yeah. So the Ukrainians
1: are being like free bombed by the Russians, but then the Russians are also having equipment issues.
0: Well, yeah. For example, they had a they have a forty mile or so. A forty-mile um, tank uh, procession that has been held up for over a week because uh, they keep breaking down and and uh, have uh, fuel problems. So they're trying and,
1: to bring a row of tanks into the Ukraine, yeah, but they, yeah. but it keeps breaking down. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of hilarious.
0: Okay. Yeah, they're stuck there. Um, so th- there's all this stuff going on, um, and the the Ukrainians are begging for. Um, Somebody to put in place a no-fly zone. So basically, their biggest danger is not the ground forces, but the air forces. And so the Ukrainians are begging for somebody to enforce a no-fly like zone. Like an
1: invisible wall that says if you cross this line, then you're going to get shot. Yeah any,
0: yeah, any planes that fly over this yeah. area, they're going to be shot down. Yeah. That's what a no-fly zone is. Yeah. So, so what... So here's what's going on, and this is where it gets like over the White House. Well, here, yes, kind of. Or Disneyland. Yes, here's where it gets precarious. That's a true thing. It is a true thing.
1: It's no fly zone over Disneyland. Yeah. It breaks the magic.
0: Yeah. Here's <laughs> here's where it gets precarious. Is that um, Poland? Has which borders the Ukraine, Poland. So this is a one way that people are trying to escape. So we have the largest refugee outflex of the Ukraine into Poland and then subsequently to other European countries that will help, um, of uh, Ukrainian refugees, um, over a million now so far. Um, Poland is entertaining the idea of... Uh, of um, helping establish a no-fly zone. Now, the way that they would do this is... uh, Okay, so here's the problem. Poland is a member of NATO.
1: Okay, so if you attack a member of NATO, then a whole bunch of other things go down. That's why.
0: Yeah, yeah. And last Sunday, uh, Secretary of State Bilkin made the comment that... They're trying to negotiate with Poland an agreement where Poland would give the Ukrainians the MiGs that they have. So a MiG is a Russian fighter jet. So Poland had Russian fighter jets uh, in its inventory. So they would give their Russian MiG fighter jets to the Ukrainians So they could defend themselves, and the United States would resupply them with newer, more advanced uh, fighter jets from the United States. For Poland. For Poland. Right. So their workaround is to say, well, you give the Ukrainians your MiGs, and we'll give you new fighter jets a lot, of, a lot of that, politics there. How do you think that uh, Vladimir Putin... Is, v- Vladimir, right? Yeah, Vladimir. How do you think that he's going to view that? I mean... We call it a workaround. He's going to say the United States is involving itself in this war and we're going to end up in World War III.
1: That yeah, maybe
0: that's where it appears to be headed at this point.
1: But it won't just be uh it won't just be with the US, it'll be with all the United Nations people.
0: Yeah, it would be with United Nations and the one thing and so the So it's China
1: and Russia versus
0: everyone else. Well, yeah, so China, Russia, Iran and uh and South uh, North Korea have all joined together to say we Agree with Russia.
1: I wonder if Trump, uh, Trump gets elected president again, if uh, um, all this will stop. Because don't they all like Trump?
0: It's not that they like him; it's that they're afraid, afraid of his of unpredictability. Right, but they they like like him. They like him because he's strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they perceive uh, they perceive Biden and the Biden administration as weak. Yes. And you know, I mean basically Vladimir Putin is a bully.
1: I'm not a big fan of of Trump. That being said, uh, I also perceive Biden as weak.
0: (laughs) Just just saying (laughs) He is he is weak and and the policy Weak
1: as a president is what i'm saying.
0: And the policies that have been put into place are not policies which have uh, shown any strength particular and for those of you that would go, "Oh, Pastor Monte, you can't say that." Well, okay, i just point you to the way that he withdrew from Afghanistan. Enough said.
1: Yeah, that's a total mic drop moment.
0: That was like, uh, you know, <laughs> just just embarrassing embarrassing right so we have things which are happening right now that are outside of our control but are on the verge of putting us into world war three yeah and if the fear is
1: well have you have you been paying attention to the companies like the various companies that are like uh wouldn't be censoring but like stopping supplying like like they're like stock, like Microsoft, I think has like a hand in um, like uh, man, what's the term I'm looking Yes, for? I have been like controlling I, like the internet and like
0: yeah, I have been watching that, uh, but some of them are just being you know two-faced and hypocritical. Um, th- you know they're not pulling out of they're not pulling out of China.
1: Let's see. Russia blocked from the global internet plunges into digital isolation. Uh, Russian authorities and multinational companies have erected a digital barricade between the country and the West, erasing the last remnants of independent information online. So they basically have now made their own internet because they've been blocked by various things. Let's see, TikTok, Netflix, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube possibly Apple, Samsung, Microsoft, Oracle, Cisco and others have pulled back or withdrawn entirely from Russia. Even video games like Minecraft are no longer available to the
0: Russians. Yeah, the what the, the difficulty is is that if if you if you isolate somebody who is paranoid, yeah, they become more, more paranoid. Yep. and as they become mer- more paranoid, they uh, they begin to uh, act irrationally. Yep, and and uh, just the way things are headed right now, um, I mean, we're just very close to possibly seeing a world war. How God is going to intervene, I don't know, but I am certainly praying for God to uh, for His uh, sovereignty. Uh, in this and an understanding of what we see going on. It's, uh, it's crazy. On the other hand, we can section into what's up with that if we want to. Uh, I just have uh, one or two uh, what's up with that. Okay. So President Biden, in response to this, has been encouraged that we should no longer be buying oil from Russia.
1: But he's encouraging yeah. people to no longer buy
0: oil. Well, he's saying we're not going to buy oil from Russia anymore. Okay. That's a good thing. But his other response is that, no, I'm not going to open up pipelines. I'm not going to open up any more. Uh, there are virtually at this point no commercial 18 wheelers that run uh, on batteries alone that's because they don't have the torque to pull 80,000 pounds um, right. and the country is, 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 is fed and run uh, by 18 wheelers and they're all diesel So these people are short-sighted. They don't understand the dynamic. Not only do they not understand that, but, you know, what do they think that the power stations that they're going to get the electricity from are run by? Sure. Coal. Uh, We have a few nuclear plants, but not many. So that's just, uh, you know... These people haven't taken a basic college class in economics, it sounds like to me. Okay, so, um, so, yeah, so my, of course, my overall feeling with that is like, you know, wow, what's up with that?
1: I mean, we've talked about this many times, but people need to be able to envision a different future if they're going to work to make it happen so just because everything's run on a particular infrastructure doesn't mean things can't be shifted or that we can't have goals of you know like how these companies have these goals of like by 2030 we're going to be a zero carbon footprint company or whatever you know what i mean
0: yeah and and don't get me wrong i i I am fully in favor of developing the technology to be able to do that for example, four years ago, five years ago, if you went out to, uh, to buy an electric vehicle, you had, uh, you had um, the Chevy Volt, you have the uh, uh, Nissan Leaf, uh, BMW put out a, an electric vehicle. All of those vehicles had uh, a range of around 100 miles. If you uh, the, the only one that had a farther range was the Tesla and they were running for like 70 and eighty thousand dollars until they put out their their slightly newer version. Hmm. So now we're starting to see electric vehicles with greater range. okay so let's let's develop that ta- technology. I'm fine with that. but it doesn't exist right now and we're not even we're not even begin to talk about some of the other technologies that are out there like hydrogen for example sure there are experimentations with uh, hydrogen vehicles in running uh, in in and do you know many people don't know this but um, you know that gas engines can be converted to run on uh, propane
1: i know that there that that sort of stuff has been around since a long time ago. And what, I think they like bought out the patents, the car companies or something. In the, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. In the 1970s, um, when we had our first fuel crisis, like in the 1970s, when I was a kid and I started driving in the 1970s, gas was 24 cents a gallon.
1: Yeah, I think uh, when I started driving in the 1990s, it was... Ninety eight cents is what I remember, like yeah. ninety
0: eight cents a gallon.
1: Yeah, uh, like driving to high school or whatever.
0: But I knew, but I knew some people back then in the nineteen seventies. I had a friend that had a taxi cab company, and he had converted all of his taxi cabs to drive on propane. Hmm. And so, even back in the seventies, we had the technology to be able to drive, you know, vehicles on propane. Your your large bus companies, like uh, First Student, and like that. They drive their vehicles on their fuel by like propane.
1: So we do have the technology.
0: We have the technology to convert engines to drive on propane. We don't have the technology right yet to, to do uh, electric. So there are things that could be developed and furthered and pushed. But as you said, uh, oftentimes, like in the 70s and 80s, uh, the oil companies bought out the patents to not allow for certain things that take place. Yep. So um, I'm all for developing things and moving forward. I'm not in favor of chopping off your nose for the front of your face. And that's right. kind of where things are at right now. Right. Okay. Hey, one last thing, a little bit lighter note. You know, in Italy, a, a bear escaped from a bear sanctuary. And where do you think that he went to and got into? He got, he got into a bakery.
1: Oh, nice. You know what he was looking for? Bread?
0: Bear claws.
1: Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to. That was incredibly special. We're going to end with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, are you going on spring break? Taking a vacation uh, soon?
0: Next week. Next week? The twenty. so I won't be here. The
1: uh, So does that mean there's no uh, there's not a show next week?
0: Uh, no, it's not next week. It's the week after.
1: Oh, it'll, it'll be the week after? Yeah.
0: Hold
1: on here. So does that, but just for show notes, does that mean there won't be a show next week? Or the week after, I mean?
0: There will be a show next week. There won't be. So next week is the 15th. All right. And then the 22nd is the week after. Okay. The 22nd is spring break and I will be not here.
1: Okay. Well, with that being said, uh, we can go ahead and close the show. I just want to get that show note in there. I know that we didn't, well, we kind of had true. We did a truth time special, a couple.
0: On, so, yes. well, yeah. Like
1: on a Saturday or whatever. Right. Uh, but, uh, we're, we'll be going radio silent there. Not this upcoming week, but the week after, right. um, So keep that in mind. Let's see. The Truth Time with Pastor Monte podcast is a resource of Olathe Bible Fellowship of Portland, Oregon. It's a member of the Vigilance Radio Network, which is basically ABF's content that provides helpful and interesting resources for the church, local and at large. If you're one of those who's enjoyed this service, remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. And remember, you can find it on YouTube and Facebook and all those places. And uh, so, yeah, take a second to do that, so you can stay up to date whenever we share new content each week. And remember that content is shared Tuesdays at 11 a.m. I'm Pastor Joshua, your your, uh, co-host and senior pastor over at ABF, and this has been Pastor Monty. The views presented in this program are not meant to express the specific views of the Laitya Bible Fellowship. You are listening to the Vigilance Radio
0: Network.